0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, 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 welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So here's what you can expect to hear on today's podcast. The Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear the appeal for the Equitas lawsuit brought by Canadian military veterans whose cause was for lifetime pensions as they'd received previously. Mark Burchell is the president of the Equitas Society, Kelsey Sheriff is the counsel, the lawyer, and Brian McKenna is on the board of Equitas. I spoke to all three of them. It has been quite the news story week. Has mainstream media covered it fairly in the way that you would expect? I spoke with Professor Jane Kirtley of the University of Minnesota. She's a media ethics professor about MSM and fair news coverage. Much in the news about white farmers in South Africa. Are their homes and farms being expropriated without compensation? Are their lives being by a political party? Giovanna Gerby is a South African journalist. She joins me from Cape Town. Mark Birchall is the president of the Equitas Society. Kelsey Sheriff is... Uh, one of the lawyers, Don Sorokin, uh, is the other who have been working so hard for Equitas on this case. And Brian McKenna is a uh, warrant officer and uh, past or retired and board member at Equitas. They all three join us on The Roy Green Show. Mark, uh, let me start with you, and thank you all three for joining us. Mark, did you, uh, did you have hope the, the Supreme Court of Canada would decide to hear the appeal? Was there, was there a sense that the decision would be different?
1: Well of course uh, Roy we thought the decision would uh, would allow us to uh, proceed to court and uh, make the case we felt we had a very strong case that uh, that and certainly uh, while the government doesn't agree i think that uh, the canadian public is pretty much unanimous that uh, that the uh, canadian people have a social covenant or what we call a military covenant with the uh, men and women who served our country and and certainly uh, the, there's no question about the fact that that all canadians believe that we have a duty of care to those who are wounded defending our country
0: um kelsey thank you for your time kelsey sheriff a lawyer who's involved in this case what exactly did the Supreme Court of Canada say? Did they provide a rationale or do they ever provide a rationale for not hearing an appeal? No, un-
2: unfortunately, um, on the applications for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, the, the the court does not issue reasons um, on those applications. So it's simply a one-line statement, either leave is, is granted or, or leave is denied. And unfortunately, in this circumstance, it was leave is denied. So we're only left to, to speculate on on what the court's reasons were. Um, certainly, this is a case that is one that we view as in, in the national importance um, and in the interest of Canada. So, um, I, I doubt that the Supreme Court refused to hear us on on that ground. But unfortunately, they don't they don't provide a rationale.
0: What were the fundamentals of the case in layman's terminology? Markus just explained some of it, but uh, what was the case that was brought again in layman's terminology? Brought to the B.C. court that decided no.
2: Um, So, basically, in 2006, they introduced this new Veterans Charter, which eliminated the former Pension Act. And under the Pension Act, a veteran that is injured in service um, would receive a lifetime pension that was tax-free for life um, to compensate for the fact that they were injured. And um, and, and in effect, by being injured, you lose your job uh, with the military. Um, And so after 2006, they eliminated that and replaced it with the new Veterans Charter, which provided a one-time lump-sum payment. Um, And that payment was grossly inadequate as compared to what veterans were receiving before. So two soldiers that fought in Afghanistan in the same war um, could fall under different benefit systems. And if if you were injured and made a claim after 2006, um, your benefits were uh, significantly less. And we brought that to the court saying that this was unfair um, and in violation of various provisions of the Charter. But the main thrust of the claim was that there is this social covenant that we mentioned earlier, um, that, that if you fight and make the ultimate sacrifice to your country, uh, that no matter what, Canadians will look after you and the government of Canada will look after you. And we argued that that was um, implicit within our Constitution, that we do not have a standing army in Canada You have to volunteer to join our army, and therefore it's an implicit part of that contract that we call the social covenant that we'll look after you if you're injured. Um, Unfortunately, the court did not agree um, and said that there was nothing in law that requires the government to look after or maintain a certain level of pension benefits for soldiers that are injured.
0: Uh, Brian McKenna, in 2015, uh, Mr. Trudeau, while he was campaigning for the prime minister's job, made a commitment to reinstate the pensions and uh, the in Parliament in uh, 2015 as well had a motion before them which passed unanimously which supported a moral covenant to uh, deliver compensation as well as services of support to disabled uh, veterans now they it was a motion that wasn't legislation involved but they were morally I believe they had, uh, they had agreed that your position at Equitas was correct.
3: Yeah, that's, that's right. And uh, first of all, thanks for having us on again, Roy. Thanks for all the support over time. You know, it's and, an honor to talk us. to you. Um, you know what? I, I guess I'll answer it this way. The new Veterans Charter was the wrong answer in 2006. It was the wrong answer before we had our ruling the other day, and it's the wrong answer tomorrow. And yeah, Mr. Trudeau stood up and he, he made a very definitive statement. You know, if he had a said, we're going to create a new benefit scheme again, then perhaps you could look at what we have today and say he followed through on that. That's not what he said. He said, we're going to take the only pension system that used to ever exist and we're going to bring it back. We're going to reinstate it. He actually even said, and increase its value. So here we are still as veterans looking at this new benefit scheme that is a decrease in value and we're just wondering when's he
0: going to do what he said he would. So Seamus O'Regan, the Veterans Affairs Minister, is walking, he's going around Canada, Mark, and he's saying that the government has in fact improved the reality for veterans and that they've opened, or at least reopened, some of the veterans offices in various parts of the country that the Conservatives closed. But when he says things are better now than they were before, and I'm assuming he means before 2006, how widely off the mark is he, and how political is that statement?
1: Well, he's uh, widely—he's quite widely off the mark, and I, I'm going to let Brian get into more of the details, but Seamus O'Regan has, uh, by his own words, attended uh, 40 town halls, or, or summits as they call them, across Canada presenting what they are, the so-called pension for life, and presenting whatever details they have. But uh, I've been to two of them now, and and what they are presenting is vague and missing on a lot of details. And um, I call it uh, strategically vague. And uh, so, uh, Bri, we uh, submitted to Seamus O'Regan, uh a series of 13 questions that Brian McKenna actually put together asking for clarification on the details of the so called Pension for Life. It was submitted to O'Regan's office twice by our local MP here, which is a liberal M- MP, gordy Hoag. And then at the last summit, I personally handed them to Seamus O'Regan and asked him to please respond to the questions that we have and he has failed to do so. So while he comes across uh, at these meetings as quite sincere, um, you know, you're judged by the, uh, or, or actions speak louder than words, and so far all we've gotten is words and no action. Okay, but, Brian. But for the details, I think, I think Brian is better equipped to talk about sure. the shortcomings.
0: Sure. Go ahead, Brian.
3: Yeah, so one of the, the things that we look at in, in terms of, the policies that are coming in and the policies that we're actually struggling against right now. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Essentially, what the government and the minister love to tell you is that the old system wasn't that good because it didn't have rehabilitation programs. Well, basically, let's look at it like this. If you discovered that your veterans that have been serving your country for over 100 years, you finally discovered in 2006 that they didn't have rehabilitation programs, well, that's the fault is on you as the country for that. And you don't remedy that by stealing the money out of their pensions. You should remedy the lack of rehabilitation programs by building rehabilitation programs and send the bill to the Treasury Board. Instead, they sent the bill to the vets. So that's essentially where we find ourselves, is repeatedly we get in the room with the minister. He's a nice guy. I, I Personally, I, I like him a lot. But i got to tell you how frustrating it is to have someone sit across the table from you and say, you know what, we can't afford your rehabilitation programs and the pensions, so we had to steal money from your pensions to buy the rehab program. That's not the answer that the Canadian citizens keep telling us. They really don't.
0: Now, in the Wait. men and the women of the military, you joined voluntarily. You wear that Canada flag patch on your shoulder, uh, on, uh, and, on your sleeves, and, and you wear it on your hearts. And the people of Canada identify with you, and we come back to the fundamental argument or case here, is that now successive governments, beginning with Stephen Harper's in 2006 and Mr. Trudeau's now, fighting you in court and stating there's no social covenant and that there's no duty of care from the federal government to the wounded and injured veterans of Canada's military. That is just the most fundamentally reprehensible position possibly to take. And uh, now you're now I understand the Conservative Party has passed a motion, and tell me if I'm correct about this, that, uh, that they will recognize that social covenant. Am I right about that?
1: Yes, that's correct. They passed it at their convention last week.
0: Okay. Do you are you are you, do you believe them?
1: Uh yeah, I do believe them and actually if you go back through the well, for now I believe them, but uh you know the, the, the we believed uh, Justin Trudeau when he made the promise also in so, 2015. You know, the, the veteran community is uh, somewhat skeptical of just about all political parties at the moment. But in fairness, I we have to go back towards the uh, the end of the conservative um government when they when Stephen Harper did realize he was on the wrong side of the issue and they needed to pay attention he put uh, Aaron O'Toole in place and Aaron O'Toole was making quite a bit of progress uh, but just ran out of time because of they were they lost the election mm-hmm. but you know the, the the truth of the matter is Roy is that um it's parliamentarians that are responsible and have to ch- have to make the changes necessary to to provide justice to uh, Canada's military veterans. So, one party or the other, it, it, like the only thing left now that the court case is finished, is a political solution. So. Somebody in government has to make the necessary changes. But the the our position on that is that we will continue to strive and work hard uh, working with all veteran organizations to put greater pressure on the all-political parties um, that is greater than the resistance they receive from the bureaucrats at Veteran Affairs.
0: Kelsey, is there something that you want to add to what we've talked about uh, so far that has to do with the legal aspects of things?
2: Um, yes, well... Unfortunately, because of the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, the lawsuit itself is at an end. But one of the arguments that we made was that this obligation is owed not just by the government of Canada, but the people of Canada. And so what I would sort of say to your listeners that are not veterans, um, it's, it's our job to continue this fight. So even though the legal battle is over, we need to pick up where the legal battle dropped off and pick it up in the political arena and so it's the obligation of all canadian citizens to take up this fight to ask your mp why three years into mr Trudeau's mandate he has not brought back the pension for life and to ask your mps why there isn't a legislated obligation to veterans so it's really on on everybody uh to keep this fight for moving forward um to improve canada
0: Mark can you uh put a human face to this what is life like for some of the veterans who suffered so tremendously in this nebulous time when government says it has no no social covenant no social contract and no really no duty of care to uh, to veterans what is what is life like for some of the veterans
1: well roy it can be quite devastating for a lot of veterans, and, and Brian would be able to attest to that better than me. He he experiences it himself and, and hears from veterans all the time. But I will read you a statement that I think summarizes kind of the, the way, you know, the feeling of hopelessness that some veterans feel. I got an email from a veteran this morning, and I won't give you all the details of it, but he, he closes by saying, at times I wish I was killed, then I would not have to live with pain and suffer the effects. And this is the way a lot of veterans feel. Uh, Lionel Desmond uh, was a, a veteran who um, who had reached the end of his line and uh, ended up taking his own life, and in the process uh, he was so distraught he took his mother, his wife, and his child with him.
0: I spoke with his sister.
1: Pardon? Yes, I... you see? Cassandra.
0: Yeah, she was on this program.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's devastating and uh you know, some statistics that um that the government doesn't collect and doesn't want the public to know is the number of veterans who just uh just can't take it anymore. They you know, they suffer from PTSD, they suffer from tremendous uh challenges in dealing with the bureaucracy of veteran affairs and and they end up taking their own lives and those statistics are not available and and the, and you know if the Canadian public knew those statistics they would be horrified to find out the state of affairs with uh, with with Canada's veterans so you know what it, the the thing is is that uh, the court case has given many veterans a sense of hope and a sense of uh, that there could be justice in the end and and what we want them to know is that as Kelsey pointed out, the court case has ended, but our efforts have not. We will uh, continue to fight for this uh, until justice is is achieved. You know, our our uh, Equitas uh, Facebook page is wild with activity right now. We've had over seven hundred shares just since we started posting articles yesterday, and. Uh, the whole idea right now is to unite the entire veteran community bring them together with one common voice and bring the canadian public in on that conversation and tell the government that we are not prepared to uh, to accept this injustice for canadian soldiers
0: and you've got the canadian walk for veterans as well uh,
1: that's right and equitus uh... Equitas underwrote the and organized the canadian walk for veterans and that, that's something that we intend to Build and uh, and have as a national walk the you know the scale of um, of the run for the cure or the Terry Fox run and you know it's not a protest walk it's actually a, a positive recognition of those uh, the new generation of veterans that are still among us as a as opposed to as uh, it, uh, as a contrast to uh, Remembrance Day when we remember those who have fallen so. You know, it's through these types of things that we will bring uh, awareness to the Canadian public of the challenges that uh, that veterans face and the need, as Kelsey says, the need of the Canadian pub- public to enter the conversation and tell governments that uh, what they're doing is
0: unacceptable. How sad that we have to do this. How really fundamentally sad it is that we have to do this, that their federal government will argue in court using Canadian taxpayers' money to challenge veterans who are looking for veter- for, for fairness, wounded and injured veterans looking for fairness. We, we're using our money to try to make their case that so they have no social contract with you and no uh, duty of care to you either. Meanwhile, uh, Brian McKenna, uh, Christopher Garnier, who was convicted of second-degree murder and the strangling death of uh, off-duty police officer... Catherine Campbell, uh, he claims that his killing of Officer Campbell caused him PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and Veterans Affairs Canada stepped up to pay for that, for his treatments, arguing that even though Garnier was never a member of Canada's military, his father was, and now the shame of Reagan, the Veterans Affairs Minister, says he's going to look into that. This is all just so fundamentally wrong.
3: Yeah, you know that one. I have to admit, uh, that one floored me a little bit. I've I've seen a thing or two over the course of uh, my life and my military time from the government, and every now and then, you know, something just knocks your shoes off, and and you just can't believe it. It happens, you know, whether it's the Omar Carter situation, ten point five million, by the way, like this. He didn't just get some treatment covered. He got $10.5 million, and now we see someone that's committed murder and seems to have an access point to care that our wounded vets actually don't have. And That one, I, I struggle with it. When I read it first, I struggle with it today. I honestly don't know what to tell you about that, because I routinely have wounded Canadian Forces veterans trying to get me to help them or help advise them on how they can access care, and this guy seems to just walk in and the purse opens up and hands him money. Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm embarrassed by it as a citizen.
0: It's an awful, awful story. And then there are the apologists who say, well, that's just the way it has to be because his dad was a member of the forces, and so you have to extend coverage to the family. This is a killer. This is a convicted, confessed murderer who says his murderous action caused him post traumatic stress disorder. And so Veterans Affairs Canada steps up. And as you say, veterans who need the help, they have great difficulty finding it. As I'm speaking with the three of you, I. I still I, – I can't get the picture of a man who's been on this program on, on a number of occasions many times. I have the greatest of respect for him. We've kind of become friends by, by the phone. And that's Major Mark Campbell, uh, PPCLI, who's very much a member of your Equitas Society and has been really front and center as far as uh, Canada's understanding of the calamitous life that you know can befall – uh, members of the military who are gravely wounded, Major Campbell losing both of his legs to the to an IED in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I feel like I need to personally apologize to Major Campbell. I feel like I need to personally apologize to to all the veterans who are suffering. And I would imagine there are millions of people in this country who feel exactly the same way. It's an it's a terrible, terrible reality. And as you say, Omar Khadr, ten point five million dollars. It wasn't just a drop in the bucket, and then the prime minister has the nerve to say that he saved us money, but you, you're asking for more than he can give. The battle's not over, Mark. Uh, we'll continue. It's equitas.ca, right?
1: It's equitasociety.ca.
0: Equitasociety.ca. And on Facebook?
1: And <laughs> on Facebook, uh, it is uh, Equitas Society. Okay.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for what you've done for Canada. Thank you for what you're continuing to do for Canada. And we'll stand beside you and try to hold these politicians accountable.
1: Well, Roy, thank you for everything you've done. You've been a big supporter of ours for, and all veterans across the country for so long. We, uh, you don't need to apologize for a thing, my friend. You've done plenty. But uh, the, the battle is not over. The Canadian public does have a responsibility. And I believe that uh, it's time for the Canadian public to step, step up where the government is not.
0: We'll do it for you, and we'll keep pushing. Thank you. All the best, to Mark and Brian and Kelsey. Thank you for joining us. Thanks Thank for representing you.
4: them. Thank you. Thank We're- you,
0: Roy. We're going to talk about news and news delivery and news responsibility, news organizations' responsibility, and what is constantly referred to as fake news, and whether or not um, media organizations, and it's not easy. I'm not apologizing for anybody, and I'm not saying this just because I'm in the media, because you've heard me criticize um, quite often when I don't think things are done correctly. I'll tell you when I don't think they're done correctly. I won't back off. Um, But it's not easy for news organizations to report everything that happens moment to moment. Now, are there times when I look at a news story and I say, there's a tremendous slant there? That headline is so favorably disposed toward the left. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this stories like the one that, well, it happened yesterday, and I think it should be getting more coverage than it's getting, and that's Bishop Charles H. Ellis III, who was at the Aretha Franklin Memorial. And if you've seen the video, it's awful. Well, this guy, the bishop, was grabbing away and groping away at Ariana Grande, after she had sung. And so now we've got uh, hashtag Respect Ariana is trending worldwide. The bishop says, well, he's, uh, he's apologetic. Maybe he was too friendly. That's not the word. It was awful to see this. Bishop Charles H. Ellis III, if you've seen it. And what troubles me also is the numbers of people who have tweeted, and if you go to at the Roy Green Show, I've posted it all there. You can see and you can read some of the comments, the numbers of people who have uh, actually criticized Ariana Grande for what she was wearing, as though that gives a man of the cloth or any man the right to grope away at a 24-year-old or any, any woman. But there are significant numbers of people who seem to criticize her for wearing what she did, and that number includes women. So that story didn't get enough attention, as far as I'm concerned. There's another one, and I tweeted this yesterday, and that is Emmanuel Macron, the good friend of our prime minister, in Denmark, saying to the Danish people that there's no such thing as a as a real Dane, um, and it's a true Dane, or a true Frenchman. He's 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 criticized and insulted his own French population. By saying they're not adjusting well enough, I'm paraphrasing here, not adjusting well enough to change. Change meaning the influx of immigrants and migrants to France. So is this what we elect these people for? We've heard that from our prime minister, from Mr. Trudeau, that there's no. What there's 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 nothing that holds us together. There's no true Canadian. Um, I don't know what the word is. I don't know I can't remember what he said what the what the term was that he used but essentially saying there's no common denominator true Canadian common denominator of course there is. So it's stories like this and that that, that Macron story got no attention or very very little attention um, smaller news organizations covered it large ones did not. The Guardian did. And then there's the bigger stories in the sense is that well, as long as it's left wing, people will tell me this again and again. As long as it's left wing, they'll get all sorts of favorable treatment. But if it's a conservative end of things, or if it's if a conservative says something, they're going to get slammed. If a liberal says something, they're going to get either ignored or they'll get praised. Like Trudeau with his his groping incident, the mainstream media had to be kicked, uh, dragged kicking and screaming into that story, which was essentially driven by social media. My good friend, Professor Jane Curtley, media ethics professor at the University of Minnesota, joins us. She's also a law professor. She works with Canadian clients as well. And it's a perfect week to assess media consumers' views of what's being reported by media in this incredibly eventful week in Canada with NAFTA and uh, with the Trans Mountain Extension. Jane, thank you for taking the time.
5: Thank you, Roy. It's great to be with you.
0: So I've pontificated here. And uh, I I do believe that there is a left-wing slant and a left-wing preference. But is that fact, or is that just me interpreting things from my perspective, because I'm a conservative?
5: Well, I, I think that that's a complicated question, for, for which there's not an easy answer. A lot depends on the sources of media that one chooses. Um, I mean, you don't have in Canada, as I understand it, um, ready access to Fox uh, cable news. And uh, certainly there are those who would say that Fox has a definite right wing slant. Um, I think if we look at, and I'm just going to pick a couple here, something like MSNBC, I think most people would agree they have a left wing slant. Um, There are certainly those who say CNN is slanted, the President of the United States being one of them. I think the jury is somewhat out on that. But you notice what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about cable. And um, cable news, which I consider to be almost an oxymoron because it's such a bizarre phenomenon, is not obviously the only source of uh, information. And what's more, it has this peculiar kind of hybrid programming where they have relatively little that is what i would call straight news they have an awful lot of commentary they bring an awful lot of pundits on they pay people to host the shows who have a clear viewpoint and so you know it, it isn't surprising that those outlets will have a point of view um, so i think you know that's one question and then if we move into the realm of if we're talking about newspapers um, online is the way most people would con- would consume them today, rather than in print. Um, you know, uh, traditionally in the United States, the idea was the news stories were reported straight, if you will, um, you know, trying to be as balanced and objective in your reporting as possible. But on the editorial pages, you would have a viewpoint, uh, both of whoever was editing the paper, but also on the op-ed page, you'd have other viewpoints. That, that was the norm for a very long time. That was wh- how I was trained and, and how I grew up. I think that's changing a lot. And one of the things I notice is when I go to online newspaper sites like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Chicago Tribune, or whatever it is, that increasingly, the way they set up their home pages, the way they prioritize uh, articles, the first thing you see is not necessarily going to be news reporting. It might very well be by a columnist. And if enough of those columnists uh, share a particular viewpoint, then it's completely understandable that you'd come away and say, well, this is a right wing newspaper, or this is a left wing newspaper, whatever the case would be. Um, but to get, I guess, to what I would consider the core of the question that you raise. I do think that there has been a seismic shift in the way news organizations view their role. Um, It's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Is it the media that has driven uh, the polarization politically in the United States, which is beyond anything I've ever experienced in my life? Or is it news organizations chasing readers and viewers and trying to deliver what they want? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Well in this but country, I there, but I think there's no question that there are you know editorial choices that are made that people could say are driven by political viewpoints.
0: Maybe Jane, to a certain extent we're talking about whether or not there is media bias and fake news. There's a difference between the two uh, Maybe there is sometimes a misunderstanding about opinion journalism and reporting a story and the there is a significant difference between the two.
5: There's a huge difference and I think, you know, years ago when people were advocating for so-called media literacy um, education, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. A- any educated person can tell the difference between an opinion and a news story. But I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that we've got a perfect storm here where Members of the public don't seem to understand it, and members of the journalism industry don't seem to understand it either. Again, there's nothing wrong with having opinions. I mean, as you say, you've been doing it for years. That's what you're paid to do, and it's great. But presumably, your listeners know that that's what you're there to do. I make it very and clear. I think and i think that the problem arises when those lines are blurred and as i said this is a in my opinion a huge problem here in the united states particularly with cable news mm-hmm. and again the 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 nature of the way that traditional news media are now presenting themselves in online formats i don't think they're making the distinction as clear as it was in the olden days when you you know clearly had one or two pages in the you know back of the first section of your paper that were labeled opinion and everybody knew that that was what it was yeah. i i don't think it serves anybody's purpose if you are not uh, giving people truthful accurate information now, of course, there have always been you know edit- editing decisions that are made. You choose to do a story or not. I mean, you were saying during the introduction that you didn't think enough um, has been said about what happened at Aretha Franklin's um, funeral. I mean, I, I'm certainly aware of what you were talking about. Maybe the news sources I turned to you know, did give the story what you would consider to be sufficient play, and, and others did not. I haven't I made a study of that. But I think uh, certainly uh, what this argues for is that no one should depend upon any one source for news. Um, There's just no way that any single organization can cover everything and give it the degree of depth uh, and scope that you might find necessary or that one might find necessary.
0: Jane, what is fake news? How would you define fake news?
5: I would define fake news, and I think that's a great question, because the term, you know, doesn't exactly have a dictionary definition. I would define it as information, false information, that is knowingly being disseminated for the purpose of deceiving. You know, as I've got multiple elements there. A mistake, in my view, that's made in good faith is not fake news. It, it is uh, inaccurate. And, and an ethical news organization will correct that. Of course, sometimes people don't see the corrections, or a story takes on its life of its own in social media like Twitter. So it's not something that is to be, uh, you know, brushed aside as not important. It's it's a serious problem when news organizations make errors like that, but that's very different from deliberately setting out to publish false information that you know is false, uh, in order to get some kind of um, particular reaction that you're looking
0: yeah, for. Yeah. Now I can come full circle in the minute we have left. I spoke uh, recently with the former CEO of NPR, National Public Radio, in the United States. And he he agreed that there's a left-wing bias in mainstream media reporting. And he said he wouldn't have noticed that until he decided to visit the other side. He's now a conservative. He visited the other side of the spectrum. But he wouldn't have noticed it. So is it possible, is it likely, that folks inject their own philosophical point of view without even being aware they're doing it? I'm, now, this is beyond the the obvious the obvious slant stories. But if a headline is uh, a little questionable, is it possible or likely that's been written in a way that it has with a personal bias of the, of, of the headline writer sneaking into the equation?
5: Of course it's possible. I mean, that's that's a softball question for me, Roy, and, and yes, of course it is possible because this is something we talk about a lot in our ethics class of, of trying to make sure that you're not allowing your own prejudices or bias to unduly influence uh, the way you Okay, so after words. the
0: softball question is this. So why does it happen? If you're a professional, uh, you look at the headline you've written and you should see it.
5: I I would agree with that, but again, what what you said a minute ago I think is true. Sometimes you you can't see what is so inherent that you you don't realize it. This is what editors are for.
0: Okay, Jane, thank you so much for the time. Always enjoy speaking with you.
5: Roy, thank you, and have a good rest of the weekend. Thank
0: you, you too. Jane Kurtley, professor at the University of Minnesota. There's a lot of news coming out of South Africa, and a lot of it has to do with white farmers. I'm not sure exactly what's going on because I'm reading conflicting reports depending on the news organization. Some reports are saying that the government is preparing to, and already may be, evicting white farmers from their farms without compensation. There's also been talk about white farmers having uh, been reported under physical threat, including loss of life. But what's the true story about white farmers in South Africa? The last time we spoke with Giovanna Gerby reporter in a uh, much respected reporter in South Africa. Uh, she's in Cape Town we were talking about the water crisis there which has abated somewhat even though the political crisis hasn't well, the politicians taking trying to get, take care of the situation. she's back with us to talk about the white farmers issue Giovanna, thank you very much for the time and let's start with this, this the, the the story that I've been hearing and reading and has been repeated is that white farmers in South Africa are now having their farms their land expropriated. Without any compensation, is that true? Is that going on,
4: Roy? Uh, good afternoon. I would say that it's not underway yet. Uh, we have uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa that's trying to woo international investors. He's in Beijing, in China, um, and he's trying to quell a lot of the the misinformation. I, I don't think we have the full truth of exactly what's going on um, at the moment. There are situations where people are occupying land and if they try and go through court to evict people off their land, uh, you know, it's taking several weeks. So it's not as if, uh, for instance, about 40 kilometers outside of Cape Town in the Winelands area, about a thousand people have occupied a, a wine farm and it's now in the court process and those people cannot be evicted so even with police intervention and that kind of thing, um, you know, those people are staying put on that piece of land at the moment.
0: So the 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 the, the farmer, and I'm assuming it was it's a white family uh, farming that yes. particular land. They don't have any legal or constitutional recourse. Is that true?
4: Well, they're in in the court process trying to get them evicted, and the the, the strategic uh, position of the farm. It's right next to an informal settlement, so an established place where uh, people live already, and they've just taken on extra land um, as the farm adjoins this piece of land.
0: There's been a lot of talk as well about farm murders and violence directed toward white farmers in South Africa, and the minister, essentially in charge of immigration in Australia, a minister, not sure whether he's still in charge of immigration or not, uh, essentially invited white South African farmers to leave the country and move to Australia where they would be appreciated. Are white farmers in South Africa under threat of loss of life and under threat of violence?
4: Roy, I think that, you know, so far when I spoke to an organization, a lobby group specifically for farmers this afternoon, They said that for 2018, there have been 282 farm attacks so far this year, with 38 murders, which is relatively high. And if we look at the South African Police Services statistics um, for the 2016-17 financial year, there were 638 farm attacks and 70 farm uh, murders, with 66 of those being specifically white farmers. The motives behind farm invasions and occupying land and the attacks, they've been broken down into various categories. Um, and they're saying that the main motive is robbery. Then obviously there's things like intimidation, political, racial, or labor-related issues. Um, but, Roy, if we look at the general murder rate for the same period, according to the police statistics, uh, more than 19,000 people were murdered in South Africa. Um overall um, across the country, nationally, and that equates to about 34 per 100,000. I think the murder rate in Canada is about less than 1,000 people per year. If you're thinking, almost 20,000 people are killed in the country. So what I'm actually trying to say is nobody wants to link the farm murders to intimidation to get them off their land, but with the high number of murders, 38 people have been killed so far this year as we're standing now, um, nobody really wants to go and invest in property, in land, in agricultural, in rural. And obviously, there's also the thing that uh, farms are quite isolated. So, you know, maybe there's labor disputes. There's a whole lot of factors that are contributing to farm attacks.
0: And Giovanna, what's going to be going on in uh, the South African Parliament this coming week, beginning uh, on the 4th, on, on Tuesday, Four days of hearings about the Constitution. What's what's that about?
4: Well, Roy, if the Constitution is amended, the Land um, Act, the, the specific clause in the Bill of Rights, it will be the first time in South Africa's democracy uh, that there would be a change to the Bill of Rights. So you can imagine the, the gravity and the seriousness of this situation. And it all started at the end of February um, that par- when Parliament agreed to review Section 25 of the Constitution, as tabled by a political party known as the economic freedom fighters uh the party's leader is julius malema and he's been beating the reform drum uh since his party was formed five years ago in fact he said the other day last week he was saying that the whole of africa needs to be decolonized um so whether that means all you know white people have to leave the continent um you know he's going down that path and This was going to be his trump card, so to speak, for next year's general elections. And uh, the ANC, the ruling party's President Ramaphosa, has stepped in, and he's beating uh, the land reform drum really hard and kind of pushing Malema a little bit into the background. And it could be a lot of politicking. Uh, Next year is going to be a really important watershed moment for South Africa when we head to those elections. Um, So so Roy, the...
0: I'm sorry. I have to jump in uh, because of the clock. So the situation is that there's so much going on, uh, many different factors in play at the moment in South Africa. Can we touch base with you again shortly and maybe after those constitutional talks?
4: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, let's do that. Giovanna, thank you so much for joining us from Cape Town. Pleasure. Take care. From uh, South Africa, Giovanna Gerby. And they were in a very, very dangerous situation as far as their water supply is concerned. Do you remember that? It's a little better now. but It's winter there, and so the water supply is a little more reliable. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend. And remember, the Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Or visit RoyGreenShow.com.